2: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. If you've ever been to a fan convention, you've probably seen many people dressed up as their favorite characters. Or maybe you even dressed up yourself. Some fans want to create accurate replications of characters, spending hours making sure costumes are just right. But steampunk, a subgenre of science fiction, is a little different. It's all about retro, futuristic technology and being as creative as possible. It's also not just about fashion. Today, we hear from the steampunk community here in Connecticut. But before we get to that, helping us answer the essential question, what the heck is steampunk? Is the steampunk scholar himself? Mike Prashan is an English professor at McGill University in Alberta, Canada. Mike, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Catherine.
2: And for our listeners, you can also join the conversation. Let us know if you're into steampunk. 888 720 9677. That's 888 720 9677. Or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. So, Mike, I want to start with talking about giving us a little background about steampunk. You know, how did you get interested in it? And how did you become a steampunk scholar? Is what I want to know.
1: Uh, I was doing my master's and I was writing a paper on uh, alternate history. And I came across this uh, article academic article on steampunk it was literally the only one that had been written at the time and then it came time for me to do my PhD and they said what do you want to do your thesis on and the conversation led me to saying steampunk because I got to thinking like if I have to write about something for three to six years I want to have a good time with it
3: That's and steampunk
1: seemed like it would be a good time so that's how I got into it the steampunk scholar thing was unintentional i just i made a blog and i like alliteration and i wanted to signal that this was a this was a blog for steampunk scholars
2: ah gotcha. and
1: then i would go to cons and people would introduce me as it and so it stuck and i'm okay with that
2: right i mean titles are given to you by others that's how it works Yeah. <laughs> and that's really cool that you were able to do steampunk as your dissertation i mean not everyone can say that and no how, how very <laughs> steampunk of you that it sort of happened by accident. Um, so, you know, through conversation, that's something you want to do. You want to have fun writing writing your, your thesis. So what attracted you to steampunk? You know, what about the genre that you're like, I can do this for five years?
1: I loved Jules Verne as a kid. Mm, me too. And um, the Disney vision of what Captain Nemo's submarine, the Nautilus, looked like was really captivating to me um i don't know how many people are even going to know what i mean when i say that i had the ViewMaster reels for that there was a little like uh slide things that you could you could project them onto a wall or you could look at a viewer and they'd had the Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea one and it was modeled off of the disney vision and so that 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 look of that ship uh was was a big part of when i was a kid and it stuck in my imagination and science fiction writer Greg Bear at a, at a con I was at, he actually said he that's where he thinks steampunk started, was Harper Goff's design of the Nautilus. So that was baked into my early memories, seeing um, some of the, you know, uh, movies that were made of H.G. Wells novels or ones that were just inspired by, like Edgar Rice Burroughs or, you know, the the stories of yesteryear. I like that era. I like the, the bolts and the brass and the rust. Um, I like the cravats. And once I got older, uh, I you know um, I, I understood like I like that that finery, I guess. Um, well, and love a good. Career. I, I like period dramas, so it all it all felt like of a it felt of a piece.
2: I personally am a big fan of Around the World in 80 Days, and I know that's mm. that's classically not it's not it's neither sci-fi or fantasy, but it's such a I mean Jules Verne is such a classic sort. I, I know a lot of people see him sort of as the godfather of of steampunk, but and I know this is a question that depend the answer will depend on who I'm asking this, but what are the origins of steampunk? You know, where did it all start, or where did the inspiration come from?
1: Well. I- definitely the inspiration comes down from verne and hg wells but i think it comes via the films more than it does the literature um really the kickoff is as far as i'm concerned for steampunk happens in the 1980s with some uh three american writers k.w jeter uh, james blaylock and tim powers and they're all they were all living in california at the time and um Jeter had gotten a, a collection of books that were about the London poor and how they lived, and was fascinated by this and used it as research for um, some of uh, some of his books. And by and near the end of the '80s, uh, Locus magazine asked Jeter, "You know this this stuff that you and Blaylock and Powers are writing, what what would you call it? Like if it, it, you know." If it's going to be the next big thing, and and Jeter's a joker, he he likes to. He's always got this wry grin on his face. He like he knows a joke that nobody else in the room does. And what he wrote back to Locus was, uh, you know, I think it will be the next big thing. And I don't know. Let's call it steampunk. But it was an offhand remark, and he's gone on the record saying that he was like I wasn't starting a genre or even a subgenre. But that that term. Hot. It was meaningless. I tend to think to some degree it still lacks any sort of power, powerful meaning, but it, it sounds fun. Like it sounds like something that, that could be really enjoyable. And so, and, and I always th- I think of it too as like a blast pattern as opposed to like this is where it starts and that's it. Because if you go backwards from that just a little bit, you're looking at other writers playing in the Victorian era, but you're also looking at the television series Wild Wild West. Um, so it's not that there wasn't any of that sort of thing going on, but I think we get the beginnings of what we now call steampunk at that point.
2: Well, I, yeah, I find I find the historical background super fascinating, which is also very—it makes sense for something like steampunk to to have all of those elements into one subgenre, say, and then now we're we're calling all kinds of different alternate genres within that, like cyberpunk and, and splatterpunk, and all of that, and so. But I think for a lot of us, um, when we when we hear the word steampunk, perhaps we first think of the Victorian era, like you mentioned earlier, especially the Victorian slums, that's a really popular place to, to get mm-hmm. inspiration from. So can you talk about like in terms of being a fan of steampunk or if you're cosplaying st- uh, steampunk style, how is it different from just dressing up like a Victorian or, you know, quote, quote, just being a fan of sci-fi?
1: Um, well, earlier when you were talking about going to a con and you said, you know, people like to dress up for those things, there's a benchmark for someone to recognize whether you're Spider-Man, right? Right. They'll know immediately. Uh, Steampunk doesn't have anything that's so canonical that you dress up in it and somebody immediately recognizes you, with maybe the exception of someone like, uh, Sherlock Holmes. Like if you're dressed up as Holmes, then in, in that classic, uh, costume, then somebody's likely going to recognize you. But the difference between just dressing up Victorian, say for, a you know, a historical recreation society, or just, you know, because you're at a really cool party or that's the way you like to dress, uh, is that steampunk messes with history. That is like the, the tightest, um, definition I could ever come up with. It is that it messes with, uh, that period in history, mostly in technological ways. So that's why you see people who have cogs on a top hat or on a on a corset. Even the corset being worn outside is not historically accurate. But historical accuracy doesn't matter Mm. to steampunks. They want to. Most steampunks that I've met who uh, work like that, who make stuff, or you know, who cosplay or do fashion, um, they want to play with these vintage eras like they're a toy box i could say toolbox but it's more playful than that um because so often when someone would explain to me the fashion that they would put together there's no uh, practical application for the stuff that they've made it's just there's a lot of beauty there are the occasional practical things but more often than not it's like why do you have cogs on your dress why do you have why the why the goggles? You know? Right. W- why does everybody need to have goggles? They don't. They just look cool. Right.
2: And that's kind of <laughs> nice sometimes. You don't have to explain why the aesthetics no. are cool.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, every every other area of fashion, it's because it looks cool. And then right. we get to steampunk and like, what does it mean? <laughs> I <don't know> <laughs> what it does anything. it mean?
2: Right. And I well, I guess that uh because I mean, the creativity, the the range of creativity, I think, is the beauty of steampunk, too. And, yeah. and so I guess the question here, I think I already know the answer to this, but it doesn't have to be Victorian or simply vintage, right? It could be a dress from the 20s or the, or the 40s or the yes. 50s. Yeah?
1: Yeah. Um, and there are people who are, you know, there's if some steampunks are listening right now, they're like, no, it needs to be Victorian. Uh, and there right. is a major uh, romance publisher that flat out told their writers if they were writing steampunk, it had to be set in the Victorian period, which is... It's really ethnocentric. It's very colonial. Um, It assumes that nowhere else in the world was anybody having an industrial revolution and that everybody's industrial revolution happened at the same time. Um, I went to a steampunk uh, con in Sweden, and they refer to that period as Oscarian because that's who their king was at the time. Um, I have a friend who uh, her background is Vietnamese. And what's fascinating about the, her steampunk costume is that it's scandalous mm. by way of comparison, like for what would have been authentically Victorian, what she wears is scandalous because it shows a lot of leg. It's leg sheathed in a a, a legging, but it's leg nonetheless. Um, and so these, these ideas of like what constitutes perfect steampunk uh, cosplay get t- oh, like they get complicated when we when we look outside the boundaries of victoriana and if we're going to include the wild west as like either the tv show or just the idea the myth of the american west as a part of steampunk that's not victorian right right we really can't call the wild wild west victorian that would be that would be broken in so many ways So there is there's there's a lot of room to play and to run with this stuff. And then when you said you know like could I dress up as you know somebody from the 20s, Um, and some steampunks would say no because it's even if it's not Victorian it's 19th century and I'm like no I'm sorry. So long as you have rigid airships, which didn't become a thing until the 20s, then you have to allow that people are going to push the boundaries of. What vintage elements they're going to grab from. Um, and that's why I think of it as that toy box thing. And it was why I was also really like people came up with the term diesel punk. And so I'll be having a conversation with someone. They'll go, Well, I really think that's more diesel punk. And I'm like, Nobody says that word except for you and me.
0: (laughs) Well, we're gonna have to roll that out. Until it's (laughs)
1: popular enough to be in the public imagination, people are gonna point to what might be diesel punk and say that's steampunk.
2: Okay, so we'll, we'll start that here, too. <laughs> okay, yeah. We'll it's that. a
1: broadly vintage look, though. That's, that's the way that I would think of it.
2: Well, and I, I like that you mentioned airships, because I was thinking about airships literally in my brain as I'm thinking about asking you to talk about the technology part of steampunk and the focus on steam energy. You know, why is that so much a part of this genre?
1: Because of the roots of the, you know, it does start in the Victorian period. Like that's where Jeter and Powers and Blaylock were writing. It's it we because of Charles Dickens, uh, Sherlock Holmes, etc. We're we're reaching back to those times because we've seen a ton of movies about them or read a ton of books about them. Um, but the 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 tech becomes essential because of that relationship to the industrial era. Now, what's fascinating, Catherine, is that there are so few steampunk novels in particular. Um, And even shows, really, that use steam as the actual technology, like um, mostly they come up with fictional, uh, fictional substances that can power um, an engine cleanly because there's nothing clean about, uh, you know, using coal and, and producing steam. And steampunks often are really big on clean energy. And so they're like, oh, we'll just go with this imaginary thing like H.G. Wells's Cavarite or whatever to make things fly or to make them do things that they need to narratively for it to be exciting. Because there's not very much, it's not really exciting to be on a steam train. It can't veer off the tracks. Um, I shouldn't say it's not exciting. It can be, obviously. Right. But like airships are really bulky. They don't fly like the Millennium Falcon, but that's what you want if you want it. You know high adventure uh and so they'll come up with these fictional substances or these advances we were we were never able to do to justify unlimited power like there's an anime called steam boy and they they basically get steam compressed to a, a level where it, it has effectively nuclear power and that's ridiculous so it's it's fiction. It's fiction. pure fiction at that point. It's not even really science fiction. It's actually a lot closer to fantasy.
2: Well, and I see a lot of people describe it as mad science, really. Yes, science.
1: <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> well, the universal uh, horror movies, you know, the mad scientist in his lab with all the Erlenmeyer flasks and whatnot, that's definitely an inspiration for steampunk.
2: Well, and before we go to break, I do want to ask, because you mentioned clean energy, and I'm curious if environmental consciousness is a theme of steampunk at, as, uh, steampunk at all, because there's a lot of you know, industrialization as part of the, the ins- inspiration for, for steampunk. But is it a part of it? Is it a part of the theme, environmental consciousness?
1: It's so funny, Catherine, like any question you ask about steampunk, the, the answer is going to be it depends on the steampunk you talk to. Um, there's not a lot of steampunk fiction that deals with environmental issues um that that isn't the bigger social concern that most steampunk writers at least the ones that i've read uh play with it's there but it's not pervasive
2: well i guess it follows the theme of we're here to have a good time
1: there's <laughs> a little bit of that but the 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 social concerns of the steampunk scene were far more about gender and race mm. i found than uh than environmental ones but that could that could you know, that could be shifting.
2: Right. And we'll be continuing this super, super interesting conversation with Mike Pershawn, who's a steampunk scholar and English professor at McGill University in Canada. He'll be staying with us. And coming up next, we'll hear from the steampunk community from here in Connecticut. Give us a call, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
0: I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life saving.
1: For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health.
2: This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Steampunk is a lot of things. It's a fashion statement, a genre, music, and throughout it all, a community. And joining us now from the Connecticut Steampunk community is Bridget Rodriguez. She's a Steamposh admin and Steampunk event coordinator. Bridget, welcome to where we live today.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
2: And still with us is Mike Pershawn. He's a steampunk scholar and English professor at McEwen University in Alberta, Canada. And for our listeners, you can join the conversation 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So Bridget, you've been following on the conversation that I've been having with Mike earlier about what exactly is steampunk. So I want to pose the same question to you, too. You
0: know, what is steampunk for you, Bridget? um that is a good question <laughs> um to me it's just uh you know mike really put it well but it it's all inclusive you really can do anything um whereas you know other things like we were talking about uh comic cons and stuff where you, you really need to get the character right um or uh going to historical reenactments where you need to make sure your materials are period accurate. Um, There's just a lot of rules even in Renaissance fairs. (laughs) Um, But steampunk allows you to just use your creativity, use your imagination, and and anything's possible.
2: And how did you get interested in steampunk?
0: Um, Well, I've always loved the Victorian aesthetic Um, I've always loved history, uh, you know, uh, so it's just been, um, something that kind of, I've always done, um, and didn't really have a word for it until, uh, actually I watched the show steampunked on, um, HGTV, (laughs) uh, that was, they brought all these steampunk makers, uh, in, uh, to a show and they each had to do over a room. And when I saw that, I'm like, oh, that's the word for what I do.
2: (laughs) Oh, I love that. I've never heard of that. I'm going to have to put that on my list.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think you can still watch it on uh, Discovery+. Plus. (laughs) Well,
2: I actually stayed at a literature-themed bed and breakfast in Portland, Oregon, many moons ago. And the room that I stayed in actually happened to be a Jules Verne-themed, and they basically decorated into like the Nautilus so it was pretty cool it, the, like tentacles oh, were wow. coming out of the walls. Um, it'd be creepy if you weren't a fan but I was a fan so it worked <laughs> out, for, <laughs> it worked out right. for me. Did not get <laughs> nightmares. Thank you very much um, and Bridget but Mike mentioned this earlier too you know it's a very all-inclusive fandom steampunk is and there are no rules essentially but can you also talk about you know how is steampunk different from other fandoms? Are there, are there points
0: that you can you know point out that,
2: that it's very different
0: from others? Um, I think it just becomes where you can take your idea and a character and make it your own, but it's still going to be recognizable as steampunk because, you know, most people do think of it as um, Victorian. You know, you start with a corset or, you know, a top hat, um, add the goggles. So I think a lot of times you can still recognize it. But it is something that you just, you know, you're not looking to create a necessarily recognizable character. Um, I think that's what makes it different from a lot of the the other genres out there.
2: And Mike, especially with what Bridget just said, and and with what you mentioned earlier too, you know, we think about the Victorian narrative. It's usually pretty focused on on white voices. But as we've been talking about steampunk is a lot more inclusive it sounds like compared to other genres so can you talk about internationally what does this look like i know you mentioned anime earlier too so this is very expansive
1: uh yeah i mean if you go down the anime rabbit hole you end up finding out that uh miyazaki beat um jeter and powers and uh, Blaylock to I, re, I think really bringing steampunk to a wider audience at the time in Japan with castle in the sky um and a, a lot of Miyazaki's films have that sort of aesthetic to them but there's a whole like uh there's a whole vibe in Japan where they they I don't I don't speak Japanese so I could not um tell you the actual Japanese phrase but it translates to... Um, the Paris of our dreams, and it's the sort of quasi-Europe that you'll see in a lot of anime and manga um, that doesn't represent earlier periods in Japan, but rather looks like yeah. earlier periods in Europe. And so um, you, you, you've got that right there, that like, is steampunk just Victorian? Um, no, because we're moving even outside Britain. In Japanese visions of it, but it, when you get something like there's a uh, an anime series called uh, Cabinary of the Iron Fortress, and it's very steampunk. It's got a very steampunk train, but then the rest of the aesthetic is traditional Japanese uh, clothing, uh, culture, etc. Um, steampunk's really big in South America. Um, I, as I said earlier, I have a friend who did it uh, using her own heritage, her Vietnamese heritage. Um, Nisi Shaw, uh, a, a science fiction writer uh, from the states, from where y'all are from, um, th- has written a book called *Everfair*, where she, uh, where they imagine the Congo, reimagine the Congo in an alternate steampunk. Uh, vision. So once you start playing outside of the the Victorian um, toolbox, you see there's a lot of other expressions of it. But Bridget's absolutely right that, I mean, when people think of steampunk, they're going to associate it most frequently with the Victorian. But um, people are like, because of that creativity that Bridget talked about, there is that urge to push at the edges. And there's nobody telling you that you can't.
2: Right, and and Bridget, with what Mike just said too, and how wide range the creativity. I mean, there's really no limits here when we're talking about steampunk. So, so when when you're dressing up and going to events, Bridget, are you seeing a flexibility in steampunk in terms of how you create a character or the characters that you're seeing at these events?
0: Oh, absolutely! It's amazing the uh, the different things that you you get to see. Um, you know, there are you know, we try different events, um, that we create, you know, we'll take (laughs) all different kinds of themes, um, in order to, to see what people come up with. Um, you know, we're planning a, a Beetlejuice themed (laughs) event, um, because the second movie's coming out in September and, uh, you know, we'll see what people come up with, with, uh, you know, different things from, from Beetlejuice, pulling those elements in, um, for steampunk. We are doing a bathing beauties, uh, event, um, where we want to get people dressed in Victorian bathing suits. Can you describe what that looks like? (laughs) Well, you know, we're thinking, you know, um, so the thing about steampunks is I find that their, uh, interests are all over, um, and we had actually done a um, a pool party for one of the events and uh, people were dressed in Victorian uh, bathing suits, basically the the stripes, the, the, you know, for ladies, it was, you know, almost a long dress with, um, you know, uh, undergarments and everything <laughs> to go swimming. So we thought it would be a fun uh Thing to do to, to go to the beach during the summer and and all dress in uh, Victorian uh, or you know bathing suits that definitely don't fit the norm today,
2: <laughs> right? And when when obviously there's no typical costume, but can you talk about how do you put together a costume, especially for someone who may want to start and they don't know where to start? You know, how do you usually go about doing this?
0: Um, I I'm more of a Pull together different pieces from different elements uh different uh places uh you know there's a lot of stuff you can get on amazon uh you can get stuff i definitely you guys were talking about social uh for environmentally conscious um one of the things about steampunks that i have met is that it's a lot of recycle reuse um finding some piece of an outfit or a you know to make some sort of mechanism is a lot of you know going to flea markets or to um you know to uh different uh, we actually go to the connecticut um steam uh, uh mechanical museum over in uh kent connecticut um they have a plethora of different gadgets and items and all these different things. And, uh, you know, people will make stuff from all those different, you know, little pieces of um, old machines that they just have lying around. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, actually later today, I'm working on my outfit for tomorrow, which is a kind of Christmas uh, holiday photo shoot, at Gillette castle, we are, I'm putting together, um, I have a, a a skirt that I have purchased, but I'm adding a, um, curtain. (laughs) I took a curtain that I found at savers and I'm making it be the front piece because the skirt itself is, is plain in the front, but has a very fancy bustle and I wanted it to be a little bit more and curtains make great, um, bustles or overskirts. skirts
2: <laughs> who knew you're gonna have to send us some photos because that sounds amazing
0: <laughs> it, it you know it's just am- uh sheets and uh curtains and uh other things like that that already have parts sewn into them for for adding it on um it's just a lot easier than you know if you don't sew um you know to make outfits Um, And a lot of, you know, inspiration I find online, you know, um, if you Google how to make a bustle, you know, no, so bustle um, there's lots of tutorials and uh, that's pretty much what we do. And we get together, we talk, you know, about different um, things that we've done in the, you know, in the past and what things have worked. My very first steampunk outfit, I took an old vest I owned and just took in some ribbon and safety pins and made it look like a corset That's just by amazing. <laughs> doing that. You know, it was just, but that was my first foray into it right. years ago.
2: Um, well, and Bridget, you mentioned this is like a, a Christmas themed party. And, and Mike, I want to okay. pick your brain here. Is our holidays a theme for steampunk?
1: Uh, not in the fiction. <laughs> there's there are very few instances where uh people in steampunk novels celebrate christmas um and it's funny because of like how hugely influential dickens is for the for the genre itself just the like if you even if you just looked at the fashion side of things the cosplay side of things you see tons of people dressing up as artful dodgers and you know characters these waifs these you know we have these ideas of the factory children and whatnot that certainly have gotten uh, worked with uh in steampunk uh costume but you 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 don't see a ton of straight up here's my Christmas steampunk thing, with the exception of Justin Bieber.
2: I did not expect that.
1: <laughs> yeah, just Justin Bieber did a, a cover of Santa Claus is Coming to Town, and the video for it is, he's it's steampunk.
2: Oh, I see. <laughs> well, we, we're going to need to head off to a break pretty soon, but I want to ask you both a final question. I'll go with you first, Bridget. Can we talk about, you know, what do you think is the purpose of steampunk, and what do you hope it, or what do you think it seeks to inspire?
0: for me um and the group that we have together is to to one get together have fun to dress in amazing um fantastical costumes um outfits that you don't get to wear every day um and uh just to be able to take our creativity and, uh, put it out there. And, you know, we love going out to, um, you know, we'll go to our event, all dressed up, but we love going out after to eat as a group and having people be like, Oh, wow, what are you dressed up for? (laughs) Um, just my everyday life. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We, you know, I've seen, you know, people who really just dress this way all the time. Um, you know, a little less maybe at work, not as much jewelry or, or the hat every day. But sure. you know, there's their Victorian blouses and vests, and that's just their, the way that they dress. But uh, for those of us, we just you know every weekend we want to get out there and, uh, and dress up and and, uh, you just have fun. And Mike, really
2: quickly here, you know, what's the purpose of steampunk for you?
1: Uh, there's a guy who runs the UK the biggest uh, steampunk con in the UK uh, called Asylum. And he used to say uh, steampunk for him was about being splendid. That was their, their theme be splendid. And I think that's what Bridget was just talking about, that there's something about seeing people in steampunk costumes, whether they're, they're posh or whether they're, you know, sort of doing the poor thing, the punk thing uh, that has a joy to it, a creative uh, joy to it. Um, I once said that I think steampunk is like, you know, a Victorian teacup, you can put anything you want in it. So if you want it to be meaningful, put something meaningful in it. If you just want it to be fun, have fun.
2: Well, we appreciate you both for being very splendid this morning on Where We Live. Thank you to Mike Prashan, who's a steampunk scholar and English professor at McEwen University in Alberta, Canada, and Bridget Rodriguez. She's a steampunk posh admin and steampunk event Nader, Thank you both so much for being on Where We Live today. Thank you. Thank you. And if you want to learn more about steampunk and how you can get involved with the steampunk community here in Connecticut, visit ctpublic.org slash where we live and check out today's show post. And coming up next, we're pivoting to talk about a favorite topic here on where we live, birds. Stay with us. This is where we live from connecticut public radio i'm Catherine shen each year the connecticut audubon society publishes its annual state of the birds to give the public an update on the bird population in our state last year the report showed a staggering population decline and this year it details some new technology solutions to protect the birds And joining us now is Tom Anderson. He is the director of communications for the Connecticut Audubon Society and the editor of Connecticut State of the Birds. Welcome back to the show, Tom.
3: Thank you, Catherine. Nice to be here.
2: And for our listeners, you can join the conversation too, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Tom, you got to tell us about this year's Day of the Birds. I think this year's report seems to be a bit more solution-oriented on what we can actually do to protect the bird population in our state.
3: Yeah, so what we did this year was we looked back at previous reports, and this year is the 18th. The first one was 2006. And we found um, issues uh, uh, or, or studies that we had written about that we thought needed updating because... Uh, well, as the subtitle of the this year's report says, new knowledge and better technologies are changing conservation. And so, we picked five areas that needed we thought uh, had um, changed significantly enough to to update.
2: And can you talk about some of those solutions to prevent bird building collisions, which seems to sure, be yeah. sort of the main um, of thing? Sure.
3: One of the um, one of the real big problems is in uh, Birds in North America and in Connecticut is that uh, each year 1 billion birds die when they crash into buildings. I know it sounds like a huge number, and it is. Um, it is the it's, it crashes into the building it is the second largest cause, cause of bird deaths. And one of the reasons that happens is because birds migrate at night and they're attracted to building lights. Uh, The state enacted a law this year that requires exterior lights to be turned off from 11 PM to 6 AM on all state buildings. So that's a start. Uh, The other reason is that in general, birds can't see or recognize glass. They see, they see the reflection of whatever the glass happens to be facing. It's basically an optical illusion of habitat and open sky. Um, And you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions of birds die each year when they fly into buildings. Um, Research shows that houses and buildings that are one to three stories tall account for 44% of all deadly bird collisions and buildings of four to 11 stories tall account for 56% of deadly bird collisions. Um, And I should probably interject now that this was a story that i edited but it was written by a, um, a woman named viveka morris um, and she is um she's a clinical lecturer and a research scholar at yale law school and she's also the founder of something they call the yale bird friendly building initiative
2: and are, I mean you mentioned like there's a lot taller buildings that, that birds can fly into, but are there things that people you know in residential areas that, that are there things that we can do to stop that? Because I have witnessed, you know, birds flying into like friends' houses, buildings and it's only one story.
3: Sure. And that's one of the things we updated this in this year's report. When we first wrote about this back in two thousand seven, there wasn't a whole lot that could be done. Uh, research was being done, but there were only Really, no. There were no really effective solutions, but um, there's been a huge a huge amount of work. There's now something that is uh, something called fritted glass, which is basically, as I understand it, it's glass made with tiny, tiny particles of other glass ground up in it, and it makes it visible for birds. They don't they don't rec- they don't see the reflection. They see um, an object that they shouldn't fly into. You can, I don't know if, um, the place that I've seen this used most recently is, is a brand new two-story library in New Canaan, where all of the windows, and there are big plate glass windows, are fritted glass. Um, you can also uh, use glass with ultraviolet patterns. Um, old-fashioned louvers and insect window screens work perfectly well. If you keep your screens up, birds don't fly into them. Um, uh, frosted glass, stained glass, photovoltaic glass, they've all been proven to work to, to keep birds uh, away from flying into them. Um, new York City, a couple of years ago, 2019, I think, passed a law which requires all new construction and significant renovations to use bird-friendly materials. And one of the things we're working on this year and next year is to start progress towards a similar law in Connecticut
2: and we've got about 2 minutes left here but I still want to get to the report that looked at urban forestry so can you talk about that and how it's you know you can get better data about the birds in urban forests as you develop this
3: Yeah sure so um a uh uh Danica Duroski, who is the Connecticut State Urban Forester she did her PhD work at the Yale School of the Environment uh, studying urban forests in um In New Haven, and she studied about two dozen places, including big parks like uh, Edgewood and East Rock, but also tiny uh, places that were basically vacant lots. And what she found is that while um, vacant lots can typically be considered to be an eyesore or a sign of neglect, um, in fact, they are developing into small, full-fledged forests that are important to, um, to all kinds of wildlife, including birds. Um, but when we looked at it, we found that not many of these at all had been studied. Um, for uh, the bird community, had not looked at many of them. Bird, bird people, bird watches tend to go to much bigger places, uh, and we know that cities are really important for birds, especially during migration. When they when when they land after migrating, they need places to eat and rest. Uh, and so one of the things we call for in this report is that more attention be paid by the birding community in Connecticut to these small urban forests, which all of Connecticut cities have, and which we really don't have a good sense of what their importance are for, for wildlife and for for birds.
2: And in about 20 seconds, can you tell us where can listeners learn more about the state of the birds? Yeah,
3: sure. Um, ctaudubon.org slash bird report. That's where you can download a pdf of this report ctaudubon.org slash bird report
2: we've been listening to tom anderson who's the director of communications for the connecticut audubon society and editor of the connecticut state of the birds thank you so much for being on the show tom you're welcome listeners can also find a link on our website to the state of the birds report on ctpublic.org slash where we live I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you always for listening.